Thank you, Maria. I'd like to invite you to turn back to Luke chapter 21, uh, which was the first reading that we heard this morning in your Bibles. We're going to look briefly at this before moving back in. Father, let your spirit be the inspiration of our hearts and our minds, my words and our reflections this morning. Let your spirit bring these scriptures to life in fresh ways for us. And through them, may we see Jesus. May we encounter him. May we hear your word of love for each of us. May we hear your word of judgment and your word of forgiveness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Shortly before his death and his resurrection, Jesus issued a terrifying warning to his disciples. Here's what he said. It's there in verses 10 and 11. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Well, this week, some of us may have felt uh, as though some of these predictions were beginning to come true. We may have felt as though fearful events truly were occurring in our day, in our age. But this passage also calls to mind the horrors of war that we have remembered and commemorated today in our service already. This uh, prophecy, this foreseeing of nation rising against nation resulting in bloodshed and massive loss of life is something that we acknowledge as true today, disappointingly true. It seems that Jesus is giving a diagnosis in these words of a world caught up in turmoil. With many claiming to offer hope or some kind of secular salvation, if you like, he refers in verse 8 to those who claim, I am he, or the time is near. In other words, follow me, I can set everything right. We can put things back in order. We can make You choose the country. Great. Again. Follow me. The time is near. Overall, there's something in the description that Jesus offers that still resonates with us today. The world as it is. The world as we encounter it in the here and now. Notwithstanding moments of great beauty and joy that we do experience, the world as it is is still a place caught up in what St. Paul describes as bondage to decay, and again as frustration. The world is a frustrated and a frustrating place. It is in bondage to decay. What message of hope, then, is there for the followers of Jesus? Well, the passage concludes today, verse 19, with Jesus' words, by standing firm, you will gain life. Stand firm. Jesus invites us to persevere and to endure, to stand firm in faith, to not lose hope, to not lose heart. When all around us may be crumbling or looking like it's uh, destined for apocalyptic doom, by standing firm you will gain life. How do we do this? How on earth do we do the seemingly impossible? Jesus issues us with an instruction and a promise. Verse 14 Make up your mind not to worry beforehand 
how you will defend yourselves. Make up your mind. Be single-minded. Have resolve. Set your heart, your mind, your focus upon not worrying, not being overcome by worry. Do not be frightened, Jesus says. Do not be frightened, he says in verse 9. Make up your mind not to worry, an instruction, and then a promise, verse 15. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Words and wisdom. Not just words of wisdom, but words and wisdom. And uh, in, in the letter of James that we're studying at the moment uh, in one of our midweek groups and in this sermon series on Sundays, we're discovering that wisdom is so much more than intelligence or cleverness or knowledge. It's about a way of life. It's about living with a pure heart. It's about living in a way which is kind and good and gentle. Jesus promises that he will give us both the words and the way of life, the wisdom of life, to stand in the face of evil and despair. And they cannot be contradicted. So now let's return to James, to our sermon series on the letter of James. And you might want to turn back to the passage, which is on page 1000. 214. And let's have uh, my first slide up, Josh. So we're returning to this sermon series that we are looking at about a faith that flowers. Uh, a sermon series on the letter of James to the early church. And James was addressing uh, an early church, predominantly Jewish Christians, who are facing exactly the kind of trials that Jesus foresaw. So these moments that Jesus has spoken about where uh, the, the, the first believers are going to be scattered, they're going to be persecuted, they're going to be hauled up in front of magistrates and synagogue rulers and asked to give an account of their faith in Jesus. This is happening. This is now happening and, Jesus, uh, and James is writing to encourage and uh, to strengthen and uh, teach the early Christian community because some of them were losing heart. Some of the early followers of Jesus were trying to fashion their allegiance to Jesus into a kind of Roman mystery cult, something that can be practiced in private, behind closed doors, something uh, which allows you to kind of keep your faith a matter of the head and the heart, but not what you live out in public. Some were tempted to try and live as Christians without their faith being seen in action through the way that they lived differently. And James is concerned above all in the whole of the letter with explaining to the Christian community that faith without works is dead. If your faith doesn't flower into something visibly different from the world around you, something visibly beautiful, then it's no faith at all. And in our reading today, James addresses the issue of our language, what we say. And he's pretty frank and brutal about it. Look at verse 6. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. Just as an aside, if, if ever people were to accuse uh, Christians for being a little bit down on the body or saying that there was one, uh, you know, something. Um, about you that was uh, bad or evil. It was probably not the tongue that they would be thinking about. And yet the Bible says that the tongue is a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself 
set on fire by hell. Verse 6, pretty grim. At verse 8, the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. But James also claims in verse 2 that if we can control what we say, then we can control anything about ourselves. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man or woman, able to keep his whole body in check. If you can control what you say and not be at fault, then you can control how you live and not be at fault. So Paul tells us that self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps in the area of controlling what we say, we need this spiritual fruit above all others. James goes on to draw some analogies to help us understand the power of the tongue. He likens our tongues, our words, our language, what we say, to the bit in an animal's mouth, something that directs their course. He likens the tongue to the rudder of a ship, unseen, underwater, small, and yet controlling the whole direction of the ship. And again, he likens the tongue to a small spark capable of starting a huge fire. Well, this to me uh, seems to be true to our experience. How often in my life, in our life, has a small, ill-considered or misplaced word started some kind of great disagreement or dispute? If you've ever been a parent, if you've ever been a child, if you've ever had a friendship, if you've ever had any kind of romance, if you've ever worked with a work colleague, if, in fact, if you've ever been alive, you will have some experience of this. The fate of many a marriage may depend on what we say, what words we use in response to the question, does my bum look big in this? More seriously, the language that we use has great power. If parents are not careful in what they say to their children, we end up saying cruel things to them when we only intended to challenge their behavior. We stigmatize, we determine, we define with our language and we place burdens upon our children or indeed other people that are unfair and unjust. And indiscretion, the inability that all of us suffer from time to time to identify that the things we've been told by friends are for our consideration only and not for wider consumption. So how then are we to tame our tongues? How do we get control over uh, this great uh, rudder of the ship of our lives. What do we mean by that? What's the scope of these instructions on our language and our communications? I want to suggest some ways. Uh, yeah, we'll go back to that last one. Thanks, Josh. I want to suggest a few ways in which we might be challenged to think about our language, about our speech and our communication. But before I do, I want to remind us that this is not about becoming sort of repressed or stifled. Uh, it's not about being burdened with regulations about what you can or cannot say and think. I have no desire to become the chief inspector of a division of ecclesiastical thought police. This is not what this is about. And remember that the language of the Psalms shows us that we can bring our, all of our anger, our hurt, our most desperate language straight before God directly. We can bring ourselves honestly into the presence of God. So as we learn to tame our tongues, it's not about sort of repressing or squashing the pain or the frustrations or even the rage that we sometimes feel. 
but it's reminding us that we bring this first and foremost before God in prayer. And St. Paul uh, invites us to be clothed with Christ, to sort of put on Christ from the outside in, to think carefully about what we're going to put on each morning. Letting ourselves become conformed to the likeness of Christ by the Holy Spirit and putting on Christ-like speech and communication. Some people wear the bracelet saying, what would Jesus do? The other question is, what would Jesus say? When we say things, when we speak, does this reflect the kind of speech, the kind of language that we expect from Jesus? So with all of that said first, here are a few ways, and I've put them on the screen, uh, in which I'm challenged by this passage. Firstly, negativity and cynicism. Do we respond to the world around us with negativity and cynicism? Uh, cynicism is a uh, little understood stream of ancient philosophy, uh, but in its most crude form by the time of Jesus in the sort of uh, Greco-Roman culture, uh, cynics were people who wanted to bring down people from their pomposity, to, to draw them down from their claims about truth or about beauty or about virtue. And the way they did this was by getting bits of mud and sometimes worse and flinging them at great orators and uh, rhetors as they were speaking in places like the Areopagus, those public places of speaking. In other words, uh, if, if you were all being cynical, uh, you might sit there now while I'm standing here, here and think, who's he to make such claims about truth or virtue or beauty? Let me find some mud to fling at him. Yeah? And it was to kind of despoil and mar the claims about beauty. Now, we probably never pick up mud to fling at people, or worse. But cynicism, you can probably see, can affect the way in which we look at the claims made by people in the world. Yeah, they all say that. They're only in it for themselves, aren't they? You can't trust anything they say. You don't really believe it, do you? Uh, just looking out for number one. It's a basic default position of suspicion. It's a basic default position that says, uh, that says and thinks negative thoughts about other people in the world. Very easy to let our language be tainted by negativity and cynicism. Anger and hatred. We want to control the world. It's one of the, the biggest problems we have is that the world is beyond our own controlling. And the result of not being able to control the world and finding that things are not as we wish them to be is to produce anger in us, frustration. And if we direct this towards other people, other people are the cause of us not having the control that we wish, we become angry at them. We begin to hate them. We begin to resent them for not conforming uh, to the, the script that we've written about our lives. Again, very easy for this to affect us in our thoughts, in our speech. It spills over into the day-to-day -day when people don't behave the way we want them to behave while driving along the road or queuing at the supermarket or walking along the street. Or if people are, we think, unconsiderate and haven't considered our wishes and our needs, we might begin to feel angry towards them. We resent those places which are beyond our control. Gossip and slander. I'm intrigued by why we so often resort to gossip and perhaps even particularly in the church. I think that it's actually down to our own self-esteem. I think that when we gossip or we share 
news or knowledge or information. What we're really wanting to do is show that we are in the know. We have been trusted with some privileged piece of information because we're important. We're powerful. They told me, and now I can tell you. And now you can see that I was somebody who was trusted with this information. I was thought important enough to know about this. So that actually it's very often our anxiety about whether we are really worth anything important, trusted, and loved that makes us want to assert that we are. It's a self-esteem issue. It makes us feel more powerful to have knowledge, and all of us, in one way or another, crave power and position and status. Now, inevitably, we all have things that we wish to reflect on with others and things to discuss, but we need to learn the proper context, the proper safe spaces and relationships for sharing our feelings and emotions. A bit like I said, with the language of the Psalms, we go to God with the things which are, which are troubling us. We need to learn uh, who are the trusted friends with whom we can share uh, our struggles, our anxieties, our worries, the things that frustrate us. Freya, our new Stepney intern, and I went to a sort of briefing session with all the vicars and interns who were part of the scheme. And uh, one of the things we had to discuss was kind of boundaries and commitments. And we had a little conversation where we acknowledged that when you work quite closely with somebody, it's inevitable that every so often you're going to feel a bit frustrated with them. If it hasn't happened yet, it's bound to happen. You know, Freya's bound to see things about me and the way I work that frustrate her and make her a bit irritated. And I imagine it may be... Uh, uh, the same the other way around but we have to find safe places where we can have our little grumble you know parents spouse we might have a little grumble and then it's done and it's rid of and actually I think that's true for all of us I suspect that in your workplaces in your colleges in your schools with your friends or your family there will be things uh, that irritate you about other people okay that's just the reality all right but how you process that what you do with that whether you're whether you find a safe place where you can have a little grumble and then it means nothing and you let it go or whether you let this fester and build up and use gossip and slander as a way of processing it. Well, that is down to you. That's your choice. So gossip and slander, lying. Lying is also about control, bending situations to suit our own greed or desires or, or, or the portrayal and representation of ourselves uh, within any place or set of circumstances. Swearing, use of foul language, uh, but particularly use of words that demean others, that run people down. And on top of all of this, there is also the nonverbal communication, the eye rolling, the harumphing, the frowning, the kind of closed posture with which we haven't said anything unkind or cruel, but in our bodies, we've made it absolutely clear what we think of somebody or some situation, right? Affects all of us one way or another. So all of those, I think, come within the scope of this issue about taming the tongue and thinking about how we live. How then do we overcome? overcome? What's a more positive assessment? And here I want to speed up a little bit and just uh, move to a little conclusion. Uh, first thing we might think about is the thumper rule. Did anybody ever see the Disney film Bambi? Do you remember the thumper rule? If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything, ni anything at all. That was the rule. That was what thumper was told. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. That's one test that we might have. Or famously, Socrates' triple filter, a way of testing anything that we might have to say. Is it true? First filter. Is it kind? Second filter. Is it necessary? 
Now, there may be times when there are things which are true and necessary to say. They, they may not be very easy to hear, but they need to be said. There may be things which are true and kind. They don't have to be said. You don't have to tell somebody what a wonderful job they're doing, but it is kind and it's a good thing to say. But if something that you're thinking, something that you might want to express is neither true nor kind nor necessary, then I think we need to seriously query whether to say it at all. And finally, the way that I think James uh, instructs us in this passage, the image-bearer way. Because all of this can seem quite challenging and overwhelmingly difficult, what then is the good news for us today? James turns at the end of this passage to an image that might help us. He says this in verse 9, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Now, this is a profound insight. If men and women have been made in God's likeness, which we have, then they are worthy of the same praise and adoration that we give to God our Father. If God our Father, if God is worthy of praise and adoration, which we do in our worship songs every week, and we look to him as we uh, express our trust and our thankfulness, if God is worthy of praise and adoration, of our positive affections, then those who are made in his image also are worthy of praise, adoration, being cherished in our words. Of course, that's not to say that we are perfect image bearers. All of us are faulty image bearers. And in some, for some of us, in areas of our lives, we fail to reflect the image of God. But we are being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We are becoming more and more like Christ, conformed to his likeness but we fundamentally are all made in the image of God. Even your most loathed enemy, the person who uh, you cannot stand, the leader of the opposition political party, the people who write in the newspaper that you wish would be burned and go out of circulation, those people still are people who bear the image of God. And James then says, it's impossible for salt and fresh water to flow in the same stream, and that should be true of us as well. So imagine a world in which only fresh water speech flowed. Imagine a world in which streams of living water truly flow from us, as Jesus promised they would. Imagine a world in which we truly saw every man, woman, and child as being image bearers, seeing Jesus in them in some way, seeing Jesus in Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, seeing Jesus in the leaders of ISIS, seeing Jesus in the refugees uh, stuck and abandoned in Calais, seeing Jesus in those who are writing um, hatred-filled pieces in some of our press publications. Imagine if we could live in a world where we see Jesus in everybody in some way. Imagine a world in which you were viewed by everybody as someone who bears the image of God and is therefore worthy of praise and adoration. How would that make you feel? To know that everybody who looked at you saw Jesus, saw something beautiful in you. It would be a very different world with very different words, very different speech, very different language and communication. It would be a world in which our tongues were used to build up and not to tear down. A world in which what we say, what we do, how we live, truly would represent Jesus to the world, to the nations. 
Well, that would be good news for us as individuals, good news for us as a church, and good news for the world that Jesus loves. So shall we pray?